Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2021. Woohoo! At last, we need this. We do. But we were, we were talking, weren't we, before we started recording. 2020 has been, for want of a better word, a bit of a shit show in, in a lot of ways. But we were kind of like, we need to focus on some positives, don't we? Yeah, we do. I think, I mean, for most people, I'm kind of guessing it's been very up and down. There's been like the extremes of doom and sadness and upset and depression. Mm -hmm. But there's also, there's definitely been some really good stuff as well. Um, Even just like for me, working from home has been, um, I don't know, that's made like a massive difference to my life. It's given me so much more time back and I miss everybody. But in terms of like doing the show as well, obviously we have full-time jobs and we do the show. It's probably brought me back 10 hours a week that I'd completely lost. So, Wow, um, that's I defi- really good. Yeah, I definitely feel I've got more time, which is um, like a huge plus. But of course that, you know, I would absolutely have rather that 2020 just didn't kind of happen because, yeah, it's been pretty horrific on the whole. Mm, yeah, I mean, for me, I've kind of gone from what I expected my maternity leave to be, to then um, it's been very, very different, which is fine. And actually, my little one, Bella, has had a lot more quality time with both her mum and dad. But equally, it wasn't what we'd planned at all. And we thought we'd go to like groups and stuff and we weren't able to. And then I went back to work kind of feeling a bit robbed a little bit of it. But equally, um, how wonderful that we still had the time as a three and that sort of thing. And I think we were in such a good position, us two, as the podcast, because we'd already decided to start trying to do things remotely. We didn't have to really have like a huge upheaval. It kind of fit quite nicely to keep going like that, didn't it? Yeah, it was weird, really, because we probably like two or three months or maybe a little bit more before um lockdown kind of happened we before the whole pandemic had happened we'd already decided to record more remotely just because again it saved us a lot of time so you're absolutely right when it came to lockdown and we couldn't physically see each other we had already settled into that new routine of of recording the show and we speak a lot don't we outside Mm, of the show but um but yeah it was like it was the one thing where it took up a lot of time recording because we would travel to each other's um fast mansions to exactly to record together even just driving yeah. through the grounds was a good half an hour's drive so it would be for me yeah i mean all the <laughs> way down that private estate um anyway so we hope uh 2021 is going to be a better year for you too uh thank you for still being here we're absolutely delighted to be going into our i don't know we started this in 2018 so yeah. this is technically like the fourth technical year it's crazy um, isn't it which is weird we've done well over 100 episodes we're well into season five now bethan has got an absolutely fascinating case for you today um, which we're going to split into two parts but we will of course be releasing them uh, on the same day uh, but we're having to split it into two parts just because it's so vast bethan's um, gone on a bit of a a bender with this one so um so before we get there let's thank our latest patreon supporters so we have Luke Buckingham, Ellie, Stephen Williams, Sarah Pilkington, Bonnie Hadaway, and also Jason Soraf, who has uh, pledged annually. Thank you so much, Jason. And also thanks to Erin Schola and Sharawen, who have increased their pledges. Uh, that's massively appreciated. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. As we say every single week, 
incredible and we really really appreciate your support if you would also like to sign up to support us on patreon you can do so by heading to patreon.com forward slash a seeing red podcast we say it every week so i'm sure none of this is particularly new to you but there's plenty of different tiers loads of different things you can get from your subscription with us so if you'd like to support us and you're able to please head over there and have a little look so this week as mark alluded to It will be a two-parter and I'm going to be telling you about a crime that occurred off the back of another very infamous crime and it's an event from UK true crime history that I find absolutely fascinating and shocking but also makes me really really cross so I was really excited to kind of get stuck into researching what happened, try and find out a bit more about why he did what he did. Oh I'm intrigued. I feel like I'm being a bit vague here aren't I? (laughs) No, I like this. It kind of builds up the anticipation. Yeah. So a case I've always found fascinating since I was a teenager learning about my first ever true crime sort of books that I was reading, that sort of thing, is the story of the serial killer Peter Sutcliffe. When he passed away recently, I again found myself thinking about covering his case for the show. But as with other high profile cases like Fred and Rose West or the Moores murderers, I feel like even trying to talk to you about the Yorkshire Ripper would be something like a 10-parter. It would be a a big case to cover. And I just wouldn't even want to begin to write this. Like Mike at Murder Mile, Paul, True Crime Enthusiast, they're really, really good with their multi-parters. But it's not really us very often, is it, Mark? No, we've done a three-parter, which actually went down really, really well. That was the the Stardust nightclub fire, yeah. Um, so that went down well. We do a few two-parters, but we now really try and release both parts on the same day because we know it can be frustrating for some people to have to wait. But yeah, we, we do, I think we, we're relatively detailed with um, with the cases that we cover, but uh, I, I couldn't go into the level of detail that somebody like Paul, for example, at the True Crime Enthusiast goes into. Paul is kind of like just an expert. He's a true crime expert and he can he can really do so much research and, and really tell a story like the um, Fred and Rose, for example, if he did that, he would tell it in a much better way than we would be able to. So there's a few cases that Paul has covered that I've shied away from in particular because I know that I, I wouldn't be able to do as good a job as him. And there's plenty about this case around there's that new documentary on Netflix at the moment and I I'm sure and I know that numerous listeners have watched that as well so I'm not going to be telling you about the Yorkshire Ripper case if you're interested in learning more about Peter Sutcliffe I would point you in the direction of two books that I personally have read that I think are really comprehensive so the first is called Facing the Yorkshire Ripper the Art of Survival And that's by Mo Lay. And Mo was one of Sutcliffe's victims and was incredibly lucky to survive. The second is Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders, the true story of how Peter Sutcliffe's terrible reign of terror claimed at least 22 more lives. And that's written by friend of the show Chris Clark and Tim Tate. It looks at some other cases that Sutcliffe could be responsible for. It's quite a concise title, isn't it? (laughs) It's a very long title. (laughs) I don't think I've ever come across a book title that's as long as that. But knowing Chris, that that will be a a fantastic book. It It really is, yeah. Um, Yeah. Potentially, I can't really remember, but Chris is incredibly generous and he's definitely donated books as prizes for our Facebook group before potentially that was one of the prizes he has actually given me a signed copy as well which um, I could lend you if you want Mark because it's really really good 
Um, mm, so yes, yeah, please. A little bit of a shout out for those two books. Um, there's so many others around, but that's just my personal kind of two that I would suggest. So today's case is going to look at the crimes of Wearside Jack and the subsequent search for the man whose misdirection of the police allowed the Yorkshire Ripper to continue his evil reign of terror for a further 18 months. So, here is a very, very, very simplified version of the events prior to today's case. Peter Sutcliffe was a serial killer dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper by the press. On the 22nd of May 1981, he was convicted of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven others between the years 1975 and 1980. So initially, Sutcliffe attacked women and girls in residential areas, but appeared to have moved to red light districts because he was attracted by the vulnerability of sex workers, but he also used such women for their services as well. He was arrested in January 1981 in Sheffield by South Yorkshire police for driving with false number plates, and although he did manage to sneak off and get rid of his knife, hammer and rope, he was transferred to West Yorkshire police who questioned him about the killings, and then he calmly confessed. He said that the voice of God had sent him on a mission to kill prostitutes, and at his trial he pleaded not guilty to murder on grounds of diminished responsibility. The jury were having none of it, Sutcliffe was convicted of murder, and this was on a majority verdict. Described as beyond redemption, Sutcliffe became one of the UK's few criminals to receive a whole life term. So Sutcliffe's 13 known murder victims were Wilma McCann in 1975, Emily Jackson in 1976, Irene Richardson, Patricia, Tina Atkinson, Jane MacDonald and Jean Jordan in 1977, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Ritker, Vera Millward in 1978, Josephine Whitaker and Barbara Leach in 1979, and Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill in 1980. He is also known to have attacked at least nine other women, and many speculate he had numerous other victims. So Chris and Tim's book in particular looks at 20 potential crimes that Sutcliffe may have committed. One of the key things to come out of this case was a huge criticism of the police force and their investigations. So following Sutcliffe's conviction, the government ordered a review of the investigation, which is known as the Byford Report. The findings were made fully public in 2006 and confirmed the validity of the criticisms against the force. The report led to changes to investigative procedures, which were adopted across UK police forces. And whilst I will not defend the police in their handling of this case, what I will say is the sensational nature of the case meant the police were overwhelmed with tips and calls and information. They were also working at a time before centralised computer systems. Yeah, I think it was unprecedented, wasn't it? There hadn't ever been uh, an investigation like this before that had captured the public's imagination so much. So, so many people wanted to help and so many people did have information or thought they had information and contacted the police. And like you say, it was before computerised systems were in place. So they had this really manual process of cataloguing information and filing it. And you can imagine it just became an absolute mess, didn't it? Yeah, and imagine sitting there, looking at fingerprints, comparing them with your own eyes. Like, wow. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, that does give a bit of background to kind of what they were dealing with. However, the way they spoke about and actually the way they felt about the victims was just disgusting. There are quotes such as George Oldfield, who led the investigation, addressing the murder on TV in 1979, saying, 
There may be more pawns in this war before I catch you, but I will catch you. That's what women were to these detectives. They were pawns. They were part of a game. They were disposable. And the Attorney General at the time, Sir Michael Havers, said of the victims, some were prostitutes, but perhaps the saddest part of this case is that some were not. The last six attacks were on totally respectable women. And it just oh makes God. me so angry to even repeat what he said. For for me as well, watch, still watching a lot of the historic Crime Watch episodes, which I'm doing on YouTube. So I'm looking at, I'm, I'm watching a lot from the 80s. And when you hear the police talk about victims, uh, it's it's just in such a different way and also different communities. Um, we've moved on so much, thankfully, in the last 30 years or even, you know, 20 years after that. But but yeah, I mean, some were even respectable women. That's just appalling, isn't it? Jim Hobson, a senior West Yorkshire detective, told a press conference that the killer has made it clear that he hates prostitutes. Many people do. We as a police force will continue to arrest prostitutes, but the Ripper is now killing innocent girls. It's just, I have no words. (laughs) No, that is, I don't know, it's almost like a whole other lifetime ago that people would speak like that. It's mad, isn't it? And like, I watched the programme Life on Mars and I really enjoyed that show, Um, And I did quite like how they showed to an audience now what policing was like back then. And um, Chris, who we've mentioned earlier, has been very vocal about talking about some of the women he worked with and how difficult their life was being in the police force as women. Um, But but things like that, oh, it just, I can't cope with it. And, And I know we've had a lot of discussions in the past and we've had some discussions on social media about the fact that the word prostitute has such negative connotations and we have obviously made a real conscious effort now. We don't use that word as our descriptive word or as job title now. We would say a sex worker. And so because of that, for the last year, I've really consciously tried to change the way that my mind would work and think. To then read that word makes me feel a bit dirty, really. Mm, it's uh, It's got such a different connotation hasn't it now than it would have had back then I suppose in their defense it was a commonly used word back then yeah exactly so they really didn't care for a long time about catching the killer not until he killed what they called innocence too and despite having interviewed him nine times in the course of their five-year investigation the police just didn't realize they had the killer right in front of them time and time again Mo Lee, whose book I referred to earlier, was a student in her final year of an art degree in autumn 1980. Twelve women had been murdered in towns and cities across Yorkshire, as well as across the Pennines in Manchester. The police had shifted the responsibility for public safety onto the women themselves, urging them not to go out after dark. But on the 25th of October, Lee went to the pub to plan her 21st birthday and after a few drinks, walked home alone to catch a bus home. She was hit over the head by the Ripper and... Luckily, she survived this attack, but later in hospital, she was asked, what have you done to deserve this? It's just, it's shocking. Two months later, Peter Sutcliffe was arrested and Mo immediately recognised him, but the police didn't want to know. She said, I was ashamed, I was embarrassed, I felt guilty. I thought I had been stupid for walking in the wrong place. A part of me felt I deserved this because I had gone out on my own. And that is how the police made women feel. Isn't that awful that she would even feel some of that blame? And I suppose there is a tiny element of me that thinks, well, um, you were living in an area where there was a known serial killer on the loose. What were you thinking? But that doesn't mean that she deserved what happened to happen. No. And it's always a really difficult one to talk about because you don't want to victim blame. And at no point in this kind of case would you. 
And there's always going to be somebody who kind of brings up the argument, well, why do you even lock your house? Why do you lock your car? We're all trying to protect ourselves from something happening. But there is a big difference, isn't there? And you should be able to walk to a bus stop after a night at the pub and not be attacked. Yeah. But one of the major things to disrupt the investigation were the Wearside Jack letters. One letter was sent to the Manchester offices of the Daily Mirror, the others and a tape recording were sent to the police. And ultimately, these threw the police off the scent of the real Yorkshire Ripper. The first letter was posted from Sunderland on the 8th of March 1978 and was written to Detective George Oldfield. It read, Dear Sir, I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I'm the Ripper. I've been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. You and your mates haven't a clue. That photo in the paper gave me fits, and that bit about killing myself? No chance. I've got things to do. My purpose is to rid the streets of them sluts. My one regret is that young Lassie MacDonald did not know because changed routine that night. Up to number eight now, you say seven, but remember Preston 75? You were right, I travel a bit. You probably looked for me in Sunderland. Don't bother, I'm not daft. Just posted letter there on one of my trips. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham and other places. Warn whores to keep off streets because I feel it coming on again. Sorry about young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again later, I'm not sure, last one really deserved it. Whores getting younger each time. Old slut next time, I hope. Huddersfield never again, too small, close call last one. The other letter, sent to the Daily Mirror and posted from Sunderland on March the 13th, 1978, read Dear Sir, I have already written Chief Constable Oldfield, a man I respect, concerning the recent Ripper murders. I told him and I am telling you, warn them whores or strike again and soon when he calls off. About the MacDonald lassie. I did not know that she was decent and I am sorry I changed my routine that night. Easy picking them up, don't even have to try. You think they'll learn, but they don't. Most are young lasses. Next time try older one, I hope. Police haven't a clue yet and I don't leave any and I am very clever and don't think of looking for any fingerprints because they aren't any and don't look up for me in Sunderland because I'm not stupid. Just pass through that place. Not bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham. Can't walk the streets for them whore. Don't forget, warn them I feel it coming on again if I get the chance. Sorry about Lassie, I didn't know. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again after another one's gone. Maybe Liverpool or even Manchester again. Too hot here in Yorkshire. Bye. I've given advance warning so it's yours and theirs fault. The police would receive hundreds of tips. For example, they took 200 anonymous phone calls and over 50 anonymous letters during the first four weeks after the Helen Ritker murder. So the letter was not in itself a shock. The same with the one that was sent to the Daily Mirror offices. Both had been routinely checked and dismissed at the time as a work of a crank. Other than referencing Preston 75, i.e. claiming to be responsible for the murder of a woman called Joan Harrison, which had not been collected to the Ripper series, there was nothing else included to tell the police that it was real. So as a side note, I couldn't really leave Joan Harrison out of this episode and so I wanted to talk about her a little bit. She had been struck on the head with a heavy object as well as being kicked and stamped on. And whilst her murder did have a few similarities to the Ripper murders, it also had important differences. Sexual activity, the lack of any stabbing and theft. 
Her murder wasn't regarded as the work of the Yorkshire Ripper, but the connection had been reported in the press, initially as a prostitute has been stabbed to death, and then a later clarification was printed. Um, So just important to kind of remember her because we will kind of flash back to her. Just 11 days before the murder of Josephine Whitaker on the 4th of April 1979, this next letter was received by Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield. Again, the letter had a Sunderland postmark. This time, the letter seemed more likely to be true. There was more detailed information and forensic evidence to suggest this. So, posted from Sunderland on March 23rd, 1979, it read, Dear Officer, Sorry I haven't written, about a year to be exact but I haven't been up north for quite a while. I wasn't kidding last time I wrote saying the hall would be older this time and maybe I'd strike in Manchester for a change. You should have took heed. That bit about her being in hospital? Funny, the lady mentioned something about being in the same hospital before I stopped her whoring ways. The lady won't worry about hospitals now, will she? I bet you're wondering how come I haven't been to work for ages. Well, I would have been if it hadn't been for your curse and coppers. I had the lady just where I wanted her and was about to strike when one of your curse and police cars stopped right outside the land. He must have been a dumb copper because he didn't say anything. He didn't know how close he was to catching me. Tell you the truth, I thought I was collared. The lady said don't worry about coppers. Little did she know that bloody copper saved her neck. That was last month. So I don't know now when I will get back to the job, but I know it won't be Chapel Town too bloody hot there. Maybe Bradford's Manningham. Might write again if up north. Jack the Ripper. P.S. Did you get a letter I sent to Daily Mirror in Manchester? And in June 1979, a cassette was received by George Oldfield. Posted from Sunderland on June 17th, 1979, the recording was of a man with a wearside accent who introduced himself only under the name Jack and claimed responsibility for the Ripper murders up until that point. The tape said, I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no nearer to catching me now than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. You can't be much good, can you? The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapel Town, when I was disturbed. Even then it was a uniform copper, not a detective. I warned you in March that I'd strike again. Sorry it wasn't Bradford, I did promise you that, but I couldn't get there. I'm not sure when I will strike again, but it will definitely be sometime this year. Maybe September or October. Even soon if I get the chance. Maybe Manchester. I like there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, do they, George? I bet you've warned them, but they never listen. At the rate I'm going, I should be in the book of records. I think it's 11 I'm up to now, isn't it? Well, I'll keep on going for quite a while yet. I can't see myself being nicked just yet. Even if you do get near, I'll probably top myself first. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Jack the Ripper. No good looking for fingerprints. You should know by now it's clean as a whistle. See you soon. Bye. Hope you like the catchy tune at the end. (laughs) Ha ha. And then at the end of the tape, there was a bit of song. 22 seconds of the 1978 single, Thank You for Being a Friend by Andrew Gold. Oh my God, is that the Golden Girls song? Is it? the Golden Girls theme tune, yeah. Is it? I didn't even know that before you... Yeah. Because you love the Golden Girls. I love the Golden Girls, yeah. 
I would just like to quickly say here to our listeners, thank you so much to Mark for reading out the letters and the transcripts because um, they're not written particularly well, so it's quite hard to read. So thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, this guy, I mean, God, the way he writes is just so weird. There's no grammar, um, weird use of words, which I'm guessing you might come onto it, but might have been used maybe as a tactic to throw the police off even further. I don't know. I think some of it will be... Um, what we'll discuss in the next and the sort of the second part but some of it is I guess um, maybe his education level and also his accent so some of the way that he writes is potentially that he's writing as he would speak but yeah some of the the phrases used kind of relate to something else which is a bit frustrating to then try and read in 2021. On June the 20th a secret conference of top detectives was held at the Wakefield headquarters of the West Yorkshire Police. Present were detectives from four police forces, the West Yorkshire, Manchester, Lancashire and Sunderland police forces. The West Yorkshire police played the gathered detectives the tape and then gave their view on its authenticity, which included the rare B-blood group connection, which had a link to the Joan Harrison murder. They discussed whether it was a ripper murder. They talked about milling oil, which was a link to Josephine Whitaker's murder and a hospital reference in that to Vera Millward. The Lancashire detectives said again that they had doubts about a link with Joan Harrison's murder to the Ripper, but no one really listened. And they all also talked about whether the tape should be released, and if released, how much of it should be. Apparently after the meeting, George Oldfield was still uneasy about whether the tape was real. The FBI told the police force that this was clearly a hoax, but ultimately the police refused to believe this. Instead, they focused in on the tape, so they focused in on the accent of the man on the tape, With voice analysts, they determined that the accent was distinctive to the Castletown area of Sunderland. 40,000 men were investigated. However, Sutcliffe came from Bradford. The police continued to ignore witnesses, for example a lady called Olive Smelt, a victim of Sutcliffe who had survived an attack in 1975. She was really angry because the police had ignored her insistence that this perpetrator was a local man. The police had their hand forced when a leak to the press reported on the tape and its contents and the police decided to release the tape pretty much unedited. So what they did now is started a huge campaign with 5,000 billboards and advertisements in 300 newspapers. They also had a hotline called Dial the Ripper which was set up to allow members of the public to call in and hear the tape for themselves. I love that idea. I think that's... um like a really clever idea, but Dial the Ripper, what a really sensationalist approach to take. We just wouldn't do that now, would we? No, and I I did think it was an amazing idea because imagine if you called up, you listened to the tape and then you realise you know that name, you know, you know that voice, sorry, and then you think, right, I can give the police a name. But how scary if you heard your dad or your husband or your boss? I do, I do get that, but we it reminds me a little bit of a case. I can't remember what season it was, but it was called The Iceman Killer. I want to mm-hmm. say it was maybe towards the end of season two. And um, it was a case in the UK. Uh, husband and wife were murdered in their own home by basically a financial advisor, acquaintance of the husband. And it was robbery, essentially. And this murderer had left an answer phone message on um, the victim's answer phone. And that was then played on Crime Watch. And the murderer's sister heard that and was like, oh, my God, that's my brother. She phoned her brother and said, that is you. I know that's you. If you don't phone Crime Watch, I'm going to phone them myself. So it was that tape of that murderer's voice that ultimately proved to be his downfall. 
and, and what I'm saying, I suppose, is I guess if whether it's your husband, your boss, um, your sister, your brother, whatever, maybe because of the appalling nature of the crimes that this person is saying they were responsible for, maybe that bond, that love, that tie just goes out the window because you see them in such a different light and and you think you need to, you know, you need to be brought to book. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, around a million pounds was invested in this publicity campaign and the public responded in their thousands. The police were overwhelmed, having already been working overtime with loads of reports in the file system that were rating processing. The additional paperwork and information from the public from the release of the tape caused even more delays in processing of files and information. Detectives in the North East decided to try and get more exposure for the tape and so they began taking copies to play in local pubs and clubs and West Yorkshire Police did this a while later. Experts continued to tell the police that this call was a hoax but they just wouldn't listen. And other evidence showed this too. So one victim of the actual ripper, Peter Sutcliffe, was Yvonne Pearson, whose body lay undiscovered in Bradford. This was about the same time as the first letter was sent, and this detail raised the suspicion of a Sunderland detective inspector. He was sure that the Wearside Jack evidence was a hoax, because the writer of the letter made no reference to this crime. He submitted his report to the Northumbria Police in September 1979, but it was ignored. Six weeks after the release of the tape, Stanley Ellis and Jack Windsor-Lewis of Leeds University, who were voice and linguistic experts, narrowed down the focus of the accent to the Wearside mining village of Castletown near Sunderland. Both felt that the West Yorkshire police should not have been so adamant that the author of the letters in the tape was the Yorkshire Ripper. They figured a 50-50 possibility was more likely. It would have been better to allow the public more options, but they were confident that the author of the letters and the tape lived and worked in Castletown. So the police set out to visit every resident from the 1600 households in Castletown. 25 detectives were involved. They knocked on doors, did detailed questionnaires with the occupants. They recorded those that couldn't help the investigation on white cards, anything they wanted to follow up on pink cards. And after 10 days, this task was finally completed. A confidential report had been sent to police forces from West Yorkshire Police and in the 18-page document they reported on the 16 known attacks and murders and included handwriting samples from the letters as well as a transcript from the tape recording. There was also a section that said a person can be eliminated from these inquiries if a. not born between 1924 and 1959 b. if he is an obviously coloured person c. if his shoe size is size 9 or above D, if his blood group is anything other than B, and E, if his accent is dissimilar to a northeastern brackets Geordie accent. Obviously, this is a huge amount of people to disregard, and Sutcliffe, the real killer, could easily be eliminated as a suspect on at least one, possibly two of the points. Well, yeah, of course, even the Geordie accent. Survivors' evidence and photo fits that were really close to Sutcliffe's appearance were rejected by the police. Peter Sutcliffe was interviewed and released nine times over five years. Four of these occasions followed the police decision to search for the man heard on the tape instead, and each time he was rejected as a suspect because he didn't have the right accent. It's so frustrating, isn't it? 
In July 1979, Sutcliffe was interviewed by two detective constables who became suspicious, and one of them, Detective Constable Andrew Laptu, and Detective Constable Graham Greenwood, filed a two-page report detailing their suspicions, saying that he should be investigated, and they wrote in this report that there was good evidence that he was the killer. The document was then downgraded because of his Yorkshire accent and the lack of a match with the handwriting. So at this point, they they are just really the force is just convinced that we aside Jack, this guy with the Sunderland accent, is the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, and they're not they're not willing to uh, contemplate it being anybody else. Exactly, they're just completely blinkered. To eliminate thousands of men as the author, police took saliva samples, asked for their shoe sizes, and took handwriting samples. They also looked out for men with a gap between their front teeth. Detective Chief Inspector Zachrison, who we talked about earlier, spent some time researching all the newspaper articles on the Ripper. He also spent time detailing the similarities between the Jack the Ripper letters of 1888 and the Sunderland letters. And he said he concluded that the letter writer was a hoaxer with an obsession with Jack the Ripper because phrases used were really similar. But the police were still obsessed with their decision that the letter writer was the real killer. Just going back to um, talking about them looking for men with a gap between their front teeth, I'm guessing the linguistic experts had determined that the author of the tapes actually did have a gap in his front teeth and they were able to maybe determine that from the way he spoke. Isn't that weird? Yeah, and also um, there was a bite mark as well that they were looking for. But yes, you're right, the linguistics experts were able to give loads of really detailed information about what this person's, um, like how they spoke and stuff was as well. So there may well have been a link with that as well, yeah. That's fascinating, isn't it? It really is. Um, Yeah, there's so much to this case that it would just go into so much detail, but there was a bite mark that they were also trying to link. Something quite frustrating, though, is that Peter Sutcliffe did have a gap between his two front teeth, something else that wasn't noticed. Some of the things the letter writer had written as predictions did come true. So, for example, he had said, an old slut next time, I hope, and the next victim was 40, one of the older women killed. But it wasn't very hard to be older than the 18-year-old Helen who had been killed before. Like, you could have hedged your bets there. The prediction of maybe Liverpool or even Manchester again did come true. But the prediction in letter three, maybe Bradsford Manningham, was totally wrong. And in the tape, he said, sorry, it wasn't Bradford. I did promise you that, but I couldn't get there. But Halifax isn't far from Bradford. The man was known to have a vehicle. He had killed in Leeds, Bradford, Halifax, Manchester. So it's a bit odd. He couldn't suddenly just couldn't get there. And he also said on the tape, maybe Manchester. I like it there for the next murder. But Barbara was the next Ripper victim and she was killed in Bradford. There were so many other things too. The Ripper Instant Room at Milgarth Police Station used a card index system, which was overwhelmed with information. It was not properly cross-referenced, leading to evidence against Sutcliffe getting lost in the system. So crucial similarities between him and the suspect, like the gap in his teeth that we mentioned, his size 7 feet were not picked up, and on one occasion he was interviewed by officers who showed him a picture of the Ripper's boot print near a body, and they failed to notice that he was wearing the exact same pair of boots. Marcella Claxton was hit over the head with a hammer near her home in Leeds. She survived the attack and was able to help produce a photo fit for the police, but she was discounted as a ripper victim because she was not a prostitute. 
and her photo fit later proved to be very, very accurate. A £5 note was found in the pocket of 28-year-old Jean Jordan in Manchester in 1977. It was traced to one of six companies, including Clark Transport, which employed Sutcliffe as a lorry driver. He was actually interviewed, but he was given an alibi by his wife and mother, which was accepted. And the police also overlooked Sutcliffe's arrest in 1969 for carrying a hammer in a red light district and attempts by his friend Trevor Birdsall to actually point the finger at him in an anonymous letter. Sergeant Bob Ring was on patrol with inexperienced colleague Robert Hyde when they found Sutcliffe's car parked off a drive in Melbourne Avenue, Broomhall, in 1981. This area was in the heart of Sheffield's red light district and the Bradford lorry driver had lured a sex worker into his car. She was almost certainly his next intended victim. He was disturbed by the police patrol and he was arrested by the two suspicious officers when they realised his van was fitted with false number plates. Sergeant Ring's police instinct kicked in and he declared the ripper was in front of them. Sutcliffe was taken to Hamilton Road Police Station in Hillsborough, where he asked, and was allowed to, disappear behind a bush to relieve himself. Sutcliffe was transported to Dewsbury for investigation by the police's Ripper squad, and, and Ring's instincts told him to go back and search the arrest scene in daylight. There, he found discarded weapons, including a hammer and knife, trademark weapons in the Ripper killings, and a further search at Hamilton Road, where Sutcliffe had also asked to use the toilet, revealed a further knife hidden in a cistern. At Dewsbury, he was questioned in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper case because he matched many of the known physical characteristics and the police obtained a search warrant for his home. They brought his wife in for questioning. When Sutcliffe was stripped at the police station, he was wearing an inverted V-neck sweater under his trousers. The sleeves pulled over his legs and the V-neck exposed his genital area. So... The front of the elbows were padded to protect his knees and I will leave it for you to imagine why he was wearing that. Uh, when you were saying that he was wearing an inverted V-neck jumper, I was like, well, how did, what does that look like? And I now, unfortunately, am picturing Peter Sutcliffe with his legs through the arms of that yep. jumper and his disgusting genitals exposed by that V-neck sweater. Yeah. What an absolute disgusting, dirty... Bastard. Yeah. After two days of intensive questioning, Sutcliffe suddenly declared he was the Ripper on the afternoon of the 4th of January 1981. And over the next day, Sutcliffe calmly described his many attacks. And then, as I said, he stood trial. He was found guilty of murder on all 13 counts and the attempts to murder seven others. And he was sentenced to 20 concurrent sentences of life imprisonment. The High Court issued him with a whole life tariff, meaning he would never be released. At his Old Bailey trial, Sutcliffe even said, it was just a miracle they didn't apprehend me earlier. They had all the facts. And I appreciate I very much simplified that, but I'm really trying not to focus too much on the Yorkshire Ripper case. Obviously, it's the overarching story to this whole thing, but I was trying to focus mostly on Wearside Jack. And it was this that the police now had to look at in more detail. They had to face the fact that the letter writer they had been chasing was indeed a hoaxer who had led the police off on a tangent away from the real killer. And not only was he a hoaxer, he had allowed the real killer to escape detection by including evidence from the Joan Harrison murder and the letters and the tapes, so giving the police false criteria for suspect elimination. They had been on this wild goose chase for 18 months. Can you imagine the realisation in the police force? 
I suppose, though, in a in in a way, it was a good day for them because they caught the Yorkshire Ripper, which is great. But then they they that is so tainted with the humiliation of being, like you say, led on a wild goose chase for eighteen months, and and they were so stoic in their belief that it wasn't a hoax, and that was to the detriment of um, catching the real killer, who went on to continue in his murderous quest for ridding the streets of sex workers yeah it's just i yeah it's just crazy isn't it it is and i think like i i obviously knew about the yorkshire ripper it's one of those cases that um we grow up hearing about but i've never i've never really explored it in any detail so that even though that was a bit of a whistle stop tour because you you're right that provides the foundation to the case that you're talking about um that still kind of told me a lot more than i i actually did know about the case but you're right this is not a deep dive into the yorkshire ripper this is about we aside jack and how he threw that investigation um off track and what i think is is uber interesting which we'll come on to i'm sure in part two is he got away with it for a long time didn't he with side jack yeah exactly so in part two we'll look at kind of what happened over the coming years and actually decades and then how things kind of ended for him and what happened kind of at the end of this this entire crazy case so as we said at the beginning of part one part two will be out now so you just need to find it and download it and listen to it you've not got to wait a week for it yeah we're being nice this time yeah we'll see you in a bit see you soon bye bye Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.